invite us to turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And I'm just going to be reading two verses for us. I'm going to read verse 19 and verse 20. Matthew chapter 28. Verses 19 and 20. Jesus is speaking here to his disciples and he says this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Father, as we look at your word, we are reminded how privileged we are to have Bibles to turn to. And we acknowledge that we're not the only ones uh, in this world, even in this very moment, who are turning to your word, who are gathered together to worship. We think of other Uh, friends, believing friends that we have who are doing the same thing in churches around our nation, around our world. We think of pastors who we admire, who are seeking to preach your word in faithfulness. And Father, just in the quietness of our hearts, we take a moment to lift those folks up to you and to ask that you would bless them. Father, would you give all your people who are worshiping everywhere ears to hear your word. We pray the same for ourselves now. Help us to uh, look at your word with carefulness, with clarity, that we might fall to conviction and ultimately be transformed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're doing something a little bit different from our normal pattern this morning. Our normal pattern for Sunday mornings is to slowly work our way through a book of the Bible verse by verse, as we have been doing um, since September through the Gospel of Mark. But occasionally, we do like to take a break to look more broadly at what the Bible has to say about certain topics. And this morning, we're taking a look about what the Bible has to say on the issue of baptism. So I want you to know if you're a visitor here this morning, this isn't what we normally do. We're normally working way through, our book, uh, through books of the Bible, but this morning we're taking a look at baptism. And the reason we're doing so is that the elders thought it would be wise for me to address the issue of baptism uh, because of the congregational letter going out this morning informing our members of a proposed amendment to our church constitution on the issue, on our policy on baptism. And they asked when the Sunday that the letter goes out that we'd preach on baptism. I said I'd be happy to do that. Uh, We're doing this not because the constitutional change is something earth-shattering. It's not. But simply because baptism is not something that we've addressed for a very long time. And we thought it would be good for us to review exactly what the Bible does say about baptism. Especially knowing that we've grown and that we have a, a good number of new people who've been coming in the last six months. So we're looking at baptism. Now, I just want to clear the air. I want you to know right off the bat, normally my sermons are a good mix of information and application. I just want you to know right away this morning, I am leaning very heavily towards information this morning and not much towards application. So this is going to not feel much like a sermon. It's going to feel more like a lesson. I hope it doesn't feel like a lecture. I don't want it to be like a lecture. 
um, but it probably will feel a whole lot like the classroom. Um, and uh, that's okay. God, God tells us to love, love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This morning, we're going to love God with all our minds, okay? Uh, so if you feel yourself getting bored and wanting to check out, rolling your eyes, just remind yourself, pastor's trying to get me to love God with all my mind, okay? And we will uh, we'll do that together. And I think it went okay in the first service. If it goes sideways in this service, we'll blame the elders, okay? We'll, we'll blame them. Now, I want you to have your fingers ready because we're not just going to be looking at one text. We're going to be looking all over the Bible at what it has to say about baptism. So have your Bibles ready. We're going to be all over the place. And I want you to know where we're headed. So first, we're going to address some baptismal confusions. Then we're going to look at biblical instructions. And then we're going to handle some of our convictions, okay? So baptismal confusions, biblical instructions, and then our convictions. But first, I want to address the question, what's the big deal? Uh, why in the world? I mean, you might be saying to yourself, I came to church this morning because I wanted comfort, encouragement. Baptism wasn't really what I had in mind in coming here. Um, why in the world should we take 30 minutes to talk about baptism? Well, the straightforward answer to that question is because we love Jesus. And because we love Jesus, we want to obey him as carefully as we possibly can. Uh, he told us in the passage that we just read, in verse 20 of Matthew 28, he said when it comes to the disciples, that we are to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. He wants us to not just be mindful of the big truths, but even the small, more practical truths, like baptism. I think about it this way. Gentlemen, if your wife tells you to renovate the kitchen, she doesn't just tell you to renovate it any old way you like. No, gentlemen, she tells you to observe all that she has commanded you. Amen, ladies? Amen? And brothers, if you would go ahead in the renovation, knowing the fine print instructions that she's given, and you just go ahead and do it however you wanted to do it, well, then she has every right to question your love for her and your honor of her. In the same way, Jesus has said, I've loved you fully, I've loved you totally, and I'm asking in exchange that you will show your love for me by being careful to observe all of my commandments. Paul said in uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, rightly handling the word of truth. We want to get it right. We know we're going to make mistakes, but we want to get it as right as we possibly can. And that leads us into our first heading, baptismal confusions. Because we realize in a church like ours, all of us may come from different church backgrounds and different histories, different church backgrounds where they understood and practiced differently than we do in many different issues, not least of all in the issue of baptism. So just to show the variety that we have among us, just by show of hands, how many of you have ever been baptized in any form? Okay. How many of you were ever baptized as infants? Okay. How many of you were ever baptized into the Roman Catholic Church? All right. How many of you have been baptized as believers? All right. How many of you have been baptized as we practice it here with triune immersion? All right. How many of you are already confused? Okay, good, good. It's, 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 it's a truth, isn't it? Baptism has been something that the church has debated almost from the very beginning that the church began. It's a confused issue, 
in the church of Jesus Christ. And uh, I think believers get confused on the issue of baptism in three different ways. I think the first confusion in the minds of believers when it comes to baptism is the influence of traditionalism. I think we all know folks who are sort of loosely Christian, who rarely ever go to church, but maybe once every 15, 20 years, they get up early on a Sunday morning, they put on their Sunday best, and they drive to some church somewhere because their niece or their nephew or their grandchild is being baptized. And you ask that individual, you never go to church before, why are you going now? And they might say something like, well, it's a tradition. That's what my family does. The family members get baptized, and, and it's just what we do. And you may ask them, well, what, what is the significance, though, of this baptism? What is the meaning of it? And they struggle to tell you. They'll say something like, well, it's just it's a touching ceremony. It's a, it's a mystical ritual that, that we like to, to observe. Mm, but what we understand is that baptism does have a meaning. It does have a significance. A second area of confusion is what we might call new birth baptism. Uh, this is the idea that baptism is what saves you. Uh, not grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, but being baptized is what saves you. If you want a fancy theological term for this, uh, theologians call this baptismal regeneration. Regeneration is a New Testament word that means new birth or being born again. It's the idea that how you are saved is by being baptized. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church teaches this. The Lutherans teach this. Uh, I remember I was talking to a friend this week, and they said that they were running in a marathon, and they tried to begin talking about their faith to the stranger running next to them. And the man replied and said, well, I was baptized as a Catholic many years ago, and that's, all, that's good enough for me, is what he said. I remember my uncle, his dad was a Lutheran. I'll never forget one of our family get-togethers. They got in an argument. It was a lighthearted argument, but an argument uh, about how one is saved. And my uncle was saying, Pop, you're saved by faith in Christ. And his dad was, no, I'm saved because I'm baptized. And back and forth they went. Now, obviously, we would have concerns about this idea of new birth baptism because it's not only confusing the doctrine of baptism, but it's also confusing the doctrine of salvation. Because if it's true that what has saved you is baptism, well, you could be baptized as an infant, and then you're good to go, and you don't have to worry about who this God is that is the one true God. You never would have to consider what the gospel message is. You would never have to place your faith in Jesus. You could live your life however you wanted, and hey, the water has covered me, I'm good to go. A third area of confusion in baptism among believers is the idea of infant baptism. And with this, I realize that I'm maybe stepping on toes of some of you here this morning. I want to start by saying that I have many friends who I very much love and respect who practice infant baptism. In fact, many of the pastors that have most influenced me are those who have practiced infant baptism. I grew up in a church where babies were baptized. And though we love and respect these folks, we have to say we believe that they are confused on the issue of baptism when it comes to their interpretation of Scripture. Now, why do some churches, like the Presbyterian Church, for instance, or the Methodist Church, why do they baptize infants? Uh, these folks don't baptize infants because they think the child is saved. 
They believe that a child is saved or someone is saved the same way we do. They believe that you have to trust in Christ alone for salvation, that faith is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. They're not baptizing infants because they think they're saved. Rather, they're baptizing infants in the hope that one day the child will be saved. They have a very high view, and I think we can actually learn from a lot from them in this regard. People who practice infant baptism have a very high view of the privilege and blessing attached to children who are raised in the context of the church and the Christian family. And they understand that God, his normal way, doesn't always happen this way, but God's normal way is to bless the discipleship of that child through the church, through the Christian home, by bringing that child to faith through the discipleship that they've received. We would agree with them that there is a special blessing to children who are raised within the context of the church and in the Christian home. Where we would disagree, we would say, even though that blessing exists, does not mean that we should be baptizing those children. You ask someone who believes in infant baptism what this, where they find this in the scripture, and oftentimes the answer that you will hear, and I hope I'm not oversimplifying it, but what you would hear them say is, scripture doesn't straightforwardly command or talk about infant baptism, but it also doesn't not talk about infant baptism. And we would want to say, oh, well, what does the Bible say? We want to come to our conclusions not on what the Bible doesn't say, but rather what it straightforwardly says about baptism. So that takes us to biblical instructions. What has God made plain about baptism? And now we're going to look at our Bibles. You say, wow, that was a really long time to get to the Bible. We're there. We're here. So number one, what does the Bible teach about baptism? First of all, Jesus commands all of his followers to be baptized. He commands all of his followers to be baptized. I want us to take a look again at Matthew 28. Uh, Matthew 28, this is the Great Commission passage. We know it well. In verse 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He has accomplished everything that he was sent to do. And now in verse 19, he's about to go send out his church to do what they have been sent to do. What is the church to do? What's the mission of the church? Verse 19, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Evangelize the world. Reach them all with the gospel message. And through your witness, I will create followers of myself. And what are we to do with his followers? Baptize them. Baptize them is what he says. So this is a straightforward command. This takes baptism out of the realm of an optional preference and into the realm of an obedient duty. This is a command coming straight from the captain himself. I remember talking to one believer who um, had not been baptized and I asked them why and they said, well, I think that baptism is really just sort of a personal preference in your walk with Jesus. Like if you want to do it, you can, but you don't necessarily have to. And I just asked them, well, what other commandments of Jesus would you say that about? And they go, oh, I don't really know. Uh, this is one of the first basic steps in being a follower of Christ. Jesus said, you're my follower, then be baptized. 
And if in our hearts we find an avoidance of wanting to be baptized or we're hesitant in, being, uh, in getting baptized, maybe that's an indicator in our heart that, hmm, I wonder if I am a follower of Jesus. Because if I claim to be his follower, but I don't want to do this one basic step, maybe I need to revisit and make sure I truly am a follower of Jesus. So first, the Bible teaches that Jesus commands all his followers to be baptized. Secondly, the early church practiced baptism as a public demonstration of a personal faith in the gospel. It is a public demonstration of a personal faith in the gospel. I'd like to uh, turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, this is the great Pentecost passage. Jesus had promised that after he ascended into heaven, he would bring the promised blessing of the outpouring of the Spirit upon the church. And in Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, is fulfilled, and he is poured out upon the church, and immediately the church begins witnessing the gospel message. Peter stands up and begins witnessing with great power and great boldness, just like Jesus had promised in Acts chapter 1. He said, power will come upon you when you receive the Holy Spirit, and you'll be my witnesses. Well, the Spirit has come, Peter receives power, and immediately he starts witnessing. And essentially, he tells the gospel message. This is an amazing sermon. I wish we could cover it all. I have to skim way over the surface of it, but I encourage you this week just to read the entirety of this sermon. But he starts out essentially by talking about Jesus' death. Take a look at verse 23. In verse 23, he talks about the crucifixion. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In the next verse, verse 24, he addresses the resurrection. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Again, in verse 32, he talks about the resurrection. Verse 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And then he talks about the ascension and the promised coming of the Spirit in verse 33. Verse 33 says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then he he ends the big crescendo, the big climax of his sermon is to declare that this Jesus is Lord and Savior of all. Take a look at verse 36, the big climax in verse 36, he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He preaches the gospel with great boldness, and what was the result? What did the crowd do? Take a look at verse 37. Verse 37 says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It's the power of the gospel when it comes upon a people. When the gospel is proclaimed, it's not just information, but it comes in power of transformation. It brings people into conviction. Just like Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, when he said, when the gospel came to the Thessalonians, he said it did not just come in word, but it came in power and with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And the crowd that day asked the question that all of us ask when we come under the conviction of the truth of the gospel. And we realize for the first time, hey, 
the gospel is true, and I need this saving message. They asked the question that we all ask. Take a look again at verse 37. They asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, hey, we're tracking with you, Peter. How do we get in on this Jesus thing? How do we join the club? How can we be sure that we're the ones who've received salvation? Maybe you're here this morning, you're asking the same question. You've been putting the pieces of the gospel together. You've come to conviction, and you know that it's true. And now you're wondering, how can I be sure? What are the steps that I need to take to be sure that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior? And Peter answers in verse 38, a simple two-step process. In verse 38, Peter said to them, number one, repent. That's step number one. What is repentance? Repentance is us turning away from our old life of defying God and disobeying God and walking in sin and knowing now that Jesus is Lord by our trust and faith in him, we come to God and we look towards him. We draw near to him. We seek to honor him and love him and obey him. It's a deeply personal thing. It's something that is a matter of the heart. We come to him in the genuineness of our hearts, saying, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have defied you. And I believe that out of your grace and mercy, you've sent your son into this world. He has lived so that, uh, a perfect life for my sake. He's died to take on my sins. And he rose again so that I might have newness of life. And I believe that all who call on him receive the help of the Holy Spirit. And I want I'm taking now, trusting in Christ as my Lord and Savior. It's a deeply personal thing, but it's not a private thing. Because step two, Peter says in verse 38, the next step is repent and be baptized. In other words, take your personal faith and go public with it. Show everyone that you are a follower of Christ by obeying his command to be baptized. And this is no small thing. This would have been no small thing for the Christians here, the people who were choosing to be baptized that day, because they knew that they were signing up very publicly for persecution. Because what they were saying as they were being baptized in front of the whole Roman world was, Caesar is no longer my Lord. Sin is no longer my Lord. This culture is no longer my Lord. Satan will no longer be my Lord. I am no longer my Lord. No, I am being baptized to show everybody absolutely, without question, Jesus is now my Lord. And I'm being baptized to show my commitment to that. And, of course, it ends in verse um, 41. 41, those who received his word were baptized. So do you see the order? Faith first. Faith in Christ first, then baptism. Faith, then baptism. Acts 8 helps us with this as well. Acts 8, the passage that Don read for us, you may want to turn there. Once again, I, I can't go into all of it, but we'll skim the surface. Um, we meet a man who is a, an Ethiopian eunuch, and in verse 27, in verse 27 of Acts 8, we discover this is a really important guy. Because uh, he's a court official of the queen of the Ethiopians. Woo! That's a good deal. 
And uh, he has apparently been worshiping in Jerusalem. And now, verse 28, he's riding back home in his chariot. He's getting a limo ride back home, essentially. And uh, what has he chosen in his limo ride for his reading material, his travel material? In verse 28, we're told that he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Uh, he must have bought it at the Barnes and Noble in Jerusalem or downloaded on his Kindle or something. Um, however he got it, he's reading Isaiah. And he's stumped. He's stumped in that famous passage we love in Isaiah 53 where it talks about uh, Jesus taking on our sin, that he was pierced for our transgression, that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. And he doesn't quite understand what's going on. So Philip encounters this man, Philip, an early deacon in the church, and uh, he says to this man, I love this simple evangelism, in uh, verse 30, he asked this man, do you understand what you are reading? In the Adam Swift translation, hey, I read that book. It's one of my favorites. Are you understanding it? Tell me your thoughts. And the eunuch says, well, I'm actually confused because I don't know whether Isaiah here is talking about himself or is he talking about someone else who would take on our sins and be slain? And Philip says, well, I'm glad I'm here because I know exactly who Isaiah is talking about. It's this man named Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, he's been walking around among us for about 30 years. And he is no longer with us because he is ascended and he's seated at the right hand of God. And actually, he is the Lord and Savior of all. And that is the man that Isaiah is speaking of. He took on your sins so that if you would trust in him, you too could be saved. He tells him the gospel. And the man believes. And then they come upon some water in verse 36. This eunuch says, see, look, hey, water. What a coincidence. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, I'm curious, in your Bible, does your Bible go from verse 36 right to verse 38? Raise your hand if it skips verse 37. Okay, mine does. How many of you have a footnote of verse 37? Okay. Verse 37, some of the manuscripts say that Philip clarified for him how he could be baptized. It says, Philip replied, said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the man replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What's preventing me from being baptized? Well, if you believe in Jesus, you can be baptized. And the man says, I believe in Jesus. And so down they go. How are we doing so far? Last, last thing that the Bible uh, shows us about baptism is that the New Testament teaches a spiritual baptism that is foundational in the believer's life, which water baptism merely represents. It teaches a foundational spiritual baptism that water baptism merely represents. Sometimes when we baptize folks here, you'll hear us say as pastors that baptism is a physical sign of a spiritual reality. It represents a reality that has happened in the spirit of the believer. I want us to take a look at Romans 6. Romans chapter 6, we were here on Easter Sunday reading this. Um, Paul here is talking about the union that we share with Jesus through our faith. When we trust in Jesus, we are spiritually baptized into him in a way that is mysterious and we can't fully understand, but that we experience, we know through our fellowship with him. 
Uh, we'll take a look at verse 3 of Romans 6. Paul writes and he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about a spiritual baptism that takes place in our lives when we trust in Christ. We say goodbye to the old man of sin, and we welcome in the new man recreated in Christ Jesus. And we have been totally unified with him in his death and in his life. And water baptism is a representation of that, so that when you go down into the water, it's a symbol of saying, goodbye, old life of sin. And when you come back up out of the water, it's a representation of the newness of life that you walk in as a believer. So these are the straightforward biblical instructions on baptisms. These are the absolutes on which we as a church will not bend. We would call these the primary principles. But we also have secondary convictions. That takes us into our last heading. Charis convictions were part of the Charis Fellowship. And these are convictions that we hold about how baptism is to be practiced. We don't hold them as tightly as the straightforward biblical instructions, but we do have convictions that we hold loosely. And we can agree to disagree with one another on some of these things. But as a church, this is what we practice. This is what our convictions are. Uh, number one, we see that the early church seemed to practice baptism by full immersion, going all the way down in the water. By a show of hands, how many of you were baptized by sprinkling? Sprinkling? Okay. How many of you went all the way under, man? All right. Good stuff. Uh, we see this from the New Testament. If you look at John the Baptist's uh, baptism, his baptism is different than the, our, the church's baptism. But he baptized in the Jordan River, most likely because he understood baptism is to be, you're going all the way down, all the way down in. Uh, the Greek word for baptism is baptizo. Can you all say baptizo? All right. It literally means to be drowned, okay? So uh, when you drown someone, well, I hope you don't drown someone. Um, but if you have to, uh, you'll find it's much easier putting them all the way down under. And it might take a long time if you're just sprinkling them. And baptism, uh, the word baptizo is also used in reference to ships that had sunk in the ocean, had been completely submerged. So we understand it's going all the way down. And what that represents is we have been fully included into Christ, fully united with him. Not half and half, not a little bit of us, but all of us. All of us has said goodbye to the life of sin. And we rise again in complete newness in Jesus. Uh, the second area of our convictions is that Jesus seems to command believers be baptized by being immersed three times. Uh, now, I want us to turn back to the Great Commission passage in Matthew for this, Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, again in verse 19, Jesus' language here, we would say, is very intentional. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say baptized in the name of God generally. He doesn't say baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit seeming to indicate one for the Son, one for, or one for the Father, one for the Son, one for the Spirit. Now we understand that some may say you're splitting hairs here because if you baptize in the three, you're still baptizing into one. If you baptize them into the one, you're still baptizing into the three because God is one and three. We would say we get that. We understand. But we, we understand that this one God is also three persons and that these three persons came together as one to achieve for us, in their threeness, our salvation. Woo! What does that mean? Every single person of the Trinity was uniquely involved in you being saved. So we understand the New Testament teaches the Father planned our salvation from before time began. The Son purchased your salvation through His life, death, and resurrection. And the Spirit processes and applies our salvation by giving us new birth and by working in us sanctification throughout all our lifetime. And we love in baptism to be able to praise each one of the members of the Trinity to say, thank you, Father. Thank you, Son. Thank you, Spirit. Incidentally, this is the area in which our elders are asking for a change in the church constitution. As it stands, uh, right now, the only people in our church who would be allowed to speak into the issue of baptism are those who have been baptized via triune immersion. And we as elders are saying, we don't think that's right because that's taking something that is a conviction and raising it up to the straightforward, absolute biblical instruction. And we want to say, let's keep the straightforward biblical instruction, the straightforward biblical instruction, and let's hold our convictions. Let's keep practicing them, but let's show grace to one another in this area. All right. We've looked at baptismal confusion, had some biblical instruction, looked at our convictions. Now let me exercise some pastoral persuasion. Um... If you are a follower of Jesus and you have yet to be baptized in obedience to the commandment he has made, that all of his followers are to be baptized as a profession of their faith in him, I would seriously urge you to obey Jesus in this regard, to be baptized on, on your profession of faith. And if not, why not? Why not obey Jesus in this command? Now, there may be some here who you're still putting the pieces of the puzzle together. You're, you you want to follow Jesus, but you're not quite sure that you're a follower yet. And you just want to take your time. And I think that's right. Take your time. Be sure that you are a Christian. That's step number one. Make sure that you're trusting in Christ. Uh, we wouldn't rush into our wedding ceremony. You shouldn't rush into your baptism. Take your time. But for those of you here who there's no question you're a follower of Jesus, well, then it's time to be baptized. Let's get baptized. 
And there may be some of you here, you've been following Jesus for a very, very, very long time. You're on step like number 1,576 in your discipleship with Jesus. And you realize, oh, I got to go back and make sure I tick the box off on step number two, baptism. I, I missed that somehow. And there's no shame in that. Uh, one of my favorite baptisms of all time here at Grace Church was Ruth Ann Esch's baptism right before she went off to glory in her late 70s. I'll never forget, she was, she was so concerned about what people would think with her makeup running everywhere and her hair all a mess when she came up out of the water. She had an amazing testimony. Her and Jake came out of the Amish community, but when they were Amish, she said one day uh, we were just hanging out on the couch together and we were bored, so I started opening the Bible and I, and I started reading it. And I just put the Bible down and I said to Jake, I said, honey, if this stuff is true, then we're going to hell. And she said, I didn't want to go to hell. So we trusted the gospel and we started following Jesus. And then she said, doggone it, I never got baptized. Somehow I missed that step. And now I'm making sure that I'm obeying that step. And what a day of joy that was when she was baptized. I remember my own baptism I got baptized in Dry Hill, Kentucky on a missions trip. The name of the river, no joke, was hell for certain. <laughs> I'm the only Christian who can say, I think, I've been baptized in hell for certain. <laughs> but I'll never forget it because I was so sick. I, I had a stomach bug. Something had gotten to me. Um, but we had, we had made plans. I knew we'd made plans that day. Some of us were going to get baptized. And the sickness that I felt... Uh, was far out, or the joy that I felt in being baptized far outweighed any of the sickness I felt. Because what a joy it is to be able to obey Jesus and say, I am your follower. You are my Lord, and I'm going to show everyone by going down into the water. And what a joy it is for the church and encouragement to see Jesus is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. To be baptized and to let everyone know, Jesus is my Lord. I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. We live in a culture right now that makes a big deal about celebrating your identity. Celebrate that I'm this. Celebrate that I'm that. They stole the idea from Jesus. It was his idea in the beginning. He said, hey, be excited about being a follower of Jesus. Let the whole world know. Celebrate by going and being baptized so all the world can see you're serious about being a Jesus follower. And so we get baptized. So, friends, if you have not been baptized, I urge you, let's obey Jesus together. He says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you are interested in baptism, I forgot to say this in the first service, I do a whole message on baptism and then I, I neglect to tell them how they can be baptized. If you're interested in baptism, step number one would just be to come to one of the pastors and say, I want to be baptized. We'd love to talk with you and schedule your baptism so that you can obey Jesus in this straightforward biblical command. We made it. We did it. All right, let's pray. Father, we are thankful that uh, we have good news to celebrate. That um, Jesus has come and he has dealt with our sin. He has rose again from the dead so that we might have newness of life. 
Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be able to show our commitment and our belief in the gospel and to show ourselves to be followers of Jesus by being baptized. And we remember, for those of us who already have been baptized, the joy that that day brought into our lives, how happy we were. We pray that you would restore that joy into our lives again, rekindle that flame so that we might be just as joy, joyful in the Lord as we were on that day. And I pray for those who uh, perhaps they're still putting the pieces of the puzzle together, that you would help them to understand what it means to trust in Christ alone for salvation, that you would give them assurance, that you would give them absolute clarity and absolute confidence in what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And for those of us among us who have been following Jesus, and yet perhaps we've never been baptized on our profession of faith, that we would wrestle with these straightforward biblical instructions, and that you would convict us of what is true, and that we would obey Jesus' commands as best we know how. We pray these things in Jesus' name.